You know, for many of us, this is a, a fun time of the year. One of our members put on uh, Facebook this morning, I saw it. Uh, there's just so many fun things to do this time of year that, you know, we should spread them out for all throughout the year. And, and for many of us, it's like that. There's time where we get together with family and friends, and it's not that we don't get together other times, but there's just, you know, this holiday season and all that represents, it's, it's a fun time. You know, we sort of do things maybe we don't do the rest of the year. And for most of us, we look forward to it. We look forward to certain traditions that we may have. And uh, like in our family, mom always has us all together for a breakfast and, and sometime in December on a Saturday. And we sort of look forward to that. My brothers and I don't get to fight too, too much. So when we get together, we get to renew those old things. But you know what I mean. Yet, in spite of that, for some, this time of year is a challenge. It can be a challenge. I know more, of, more than one person that um, just do not celebrate these holidays at all. Uh, and, and the reason that they don't is because someone very near and dear to them uh, died during this time of year. And so this time, uh, this holiday season and, and, and all that's entailed, it brings some painful memories. And so, you know, it's a challenge for them because all those old feelings are brought to the surface again. And then for others, it may be a challenge because someone near and dear to them um, has passed this last year. And so all those things that they did before, maybe a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or uh, maybe, you know, someone very close to you that uh, close to them has passed. And so uh, this time that we think is a time of joy and a time of giving and a time of of fellowship and a time of family, um, it's real difficult. And so, you know, it's not a happy time. But this morning, I want to think a little bit about the spiritual challenges that come with this time of year and with Christmas. Uh, and, and sometimes we don't think about that. Uh, that uh, there are challenges to our spirituality and about who we are and what we're about. One of the challenges that, uh, I don't know if it's just when you have children or, or what it is, but one of the challenges that New Testament Christians uh, face during this time of year is the challenge of materialism. Um, you know, you turn on television, you listen to the radio, e even across your phones, you know, if you have apps that have advertisements or you've ever bought something from a company and they have your email address, uh, you just have this constant flow of these things that they think that you think that you might need uh, to buy for yourself or to buy for someone that you care for. And I did a little research, and um, last year, in 2018, 740 billion dollars were spent during the holiday season. That's 740 with nine zeros after. 
Now, just let me help you put that in, help us to put that in perspective. If you bought a car that cost thirty thousand, I don't even know if there's a car out there that costs thirty thousand new. But if you bought a car that cost thirty thousand, with seven hundred and forty billion dollars, you could buy twenty-four million of them. You know, you'd never have to wash that car again. <laughs> If you bought a house, you know, all around where Shirley and I live, there's a lot of construction up there because there was a lot of, of, um, of uh, orange groves. Um, if you bought a house that was $200,000, it's a little more difficult. You can only buy three and a half million of those. If you saved $10,000 a day, $10,000 a day, if you save $10,000 a day, it would only take you 197,000 years to save $740 billion. And that's how much was spent in America. That's not throughout the world. In the United States last year, and I would assume that probably this year would be even more. This time of year, a lot of money is spent, and that's why you see these ads. That's why you're getting these emails. That's why you're getting these texts. And so as Christians, it can, be, it can be a struggle for us spiritually, especially if you have children at home. You know, Mom and Dad, you know, all my friends are getting the latest iPad or the latest iPhone, which is, I think, eleven dollars or $1,300. And you don't want me to be the, the odd person out. You don't want my friends to think I'm some kind of goofball or something because I don't have this iPhone. And so it's a struggle. It's a struggle not to buy in to what our society says that we need uh, and should want. The Bible has much to say about materialism. It's, he's, the Bible says that it is a never satisfied hunger. Once you and I buy into this thing that, that you know, we need to make sure that our kids know that we love them by what we give them in these material type things, it's a hunger that's never going to be satisfied. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, the one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. And, and we understand that. There's never enough. That computer's never fast enough. Those clothes are never up-to-date enough. They're never nice enough. That iPhone or that phone's not... It doesn't have all the bells and whistles. That car doesn't have all the things. It doesn't go fast enough. It's not loud enough. It's not comfortable enough. And you and I understand that. Because probably we've all bought into that one time or another in our life. Where we look at what we have and we think, oh, you know, I need a new car. I need another car. I need another computer. And once we start down that road, there's never enough. Bible also says that materialism is a snare waiting to trap its victims. But those who do desire to be rich fall into temptations, Paul wrote to Timothy, into a snare with many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then here's the thing about when we buy into materialism. 
it gives us a false sense of security. That these things that you and I accumulate, these things that, you know, when I have this, this most recent and fastest iPhone or, or Samsung phone or whatever it is, that, you know, this is what I need. This is going to get me through and this is going to help me to be what I want to be. The rich think of their wealth as a strong defense, the wise men said. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. And we think about that, you know, we think if we accumulate enough things that they'll take care of us. If I accumulate enough, enough savings, it'll take care of me in my old age. If I accumulate enough a house, I'll always have a place to live. But how many people do you and I know that developed some horrible disease or, or some tragedy came and they were wiped out in an instant? I think about here a few years ago, who was the fellow Bernie Madoff? And how many of those people do you think that, you know, they thought they were set? We're good. I mean, you know, my money, my investments are going to take care of me. And in a moment, they found out that they had nothing. I have a friend in Ghana, Ernest Apiadu. And he retired from a company he worked for for years and the company that he invested his funds in was another Bernie Madoff. And now here he is, he's my age, and struggling, struggling for his daily bread. Materialism will do things like that. And Christmas, this time of year, this holiday season, is a time that if we're not careful, that materialism will affect or have challenge our spirituality. Another thing about this time of year, it, it challenges us in our spirituality in that there seems to be more opportunities that come up where we could compromise our faith. Here's what I mean. Ever been talking to your neighbor? And they say, um, you know, we're having a Christmas play at our church. You know, we're having uh, all the young people are getting together on, you know, Sunday night at our worship and uh, we're singing, you know, the young people are all singing hymns or, or what do they call those things? Christmas carols. What is your church doing? It's sort of hard to say we're not doing anything. Well, don't you all believe in Jesus? What kind of a church are you? And so it puts us in a difficult situation when we who follow the New Testament and understand that there's nothing in the Bible that authorizes the church as celebrating Christmas, this time of year as a religious holiday, there's this pressure put on us by those around us. Well, don't you know? Jesus is the reason for the season? How many of us have heard that? Y'all don't believe that, that Jesus was born on Christmas Day? And so we're put in this situation where often it can be very uncomfortable. Merely because we look, people look at us like, you guys claim to be the church of Christ. 
But yet, you don't honor Christmas? You don't honor the birth of Jesus? You don't have Christmas plays? You don't have midnight Christmas Eve worship? Or you can go on with Easter or whatever the so-called religious holiday would be? It can be a challenge. And I dare say there's probably not too many of us here that have not been challenged along those lines. Where in fact, I can remember when I was a first Christian that, you know, I felt sort of like embarrassed. Like, you know, I wasn't good enough. You know, I, was, I wasn't being the kind of Christian that, that honors the birth of Christ and, and, and does all these things. It can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to our young people who are in school. Where someone says, your church doesn't have Christmas party. You don't have a Christmas tree in your foyer. You all don't get together and, and, and at your church building and exchange gifts with each other. It's Jesus' birthday. I know you've heard it. I can tell by the looks on your faces. But here's what the Bible says about that. And it says it at three different places in the Bible in various ways. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, Moses told Israel, You shall not add to the word which I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. What was God saying through Moses? You stay within the parameters that I set forth. You stay within the confines of this law that I'm giving you. You don't go beyond what the law says. You don't add to it. You don't add anything to it. Nor do you take away from what the law says. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, wisdom dictates, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to all who come to him for protection. Do not add to his words or he may rebuke you and expose you as a liar. Here wisdom says, don't add to what God says. In other words, stay again within the parameters that God has set. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, John told the seven churches of Asia about the seriousness of staying within the parameters of God's will. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. What was John saying? Stay within the parameters of what God has said. And as we read through the Bible, you're not going to find the word Christmas in there. You're going to read about the birth of Christ, but if you study it, you'll find out that that most likely occurred in the spring of the year and not in the winter of the year. And nowhere does God say that we as a church, as a, 
uh, a body are to celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. And so it can become a challenge because our friends, our neighbors, sometimes even our family are celebrating what they see as, as the birthday of Christ and we look almost like pagans to them. God says, stay within my parameters. And then the third challenge is because is that we have to be careful that we don't become a judge rather than a servant. Some brethren take extreme positions about the holiday Christmas. I remember a brother at my first work years ago that he would not allow his wife to put up any Christmas decorations at all. She couldn't put up a tree. She couldn't put up bows, red bows, or, or anything that, that signified Christmas. And, and sometimes we run across those uh, individuals that say, I, I'm not going to do anything that's, that would in, involve this holiday at all. That's one extreme. Then the other extreme is the brother or sister that embraces every aspect about it. You go and, and they have a nativity scene on their driveway and their yard and, and you know, they're ha playing music maybe over speaker systems, you know, like songs that suggest that Christmas is, uh, that December 25th is the birthday of Jesus. And, you know, oh, holy night, silent night, holy night, all those things. And so you have these two extremes where people have, brothers have convictions about those things. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I'll read through it quickly. Receive one who is weak in the faith, not to disputes over doubtful things. The weak in the faith here, in this context, is a person that has convictions about something. Convictions that God really doesn't care about. It's just personal convictions. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but one who is weak eat only vegetables. And Paul's going to, to put this in the context of whether or not you could eat meat or whether or not you could not eat meat. And the problem with the meat in the first century was that sometimes the only meat that was available was meat that was offered to idols. And so then if you ate this meat off or die, those some would say, well, hey, you're worshiping the idols. No, I'm just buying meat. On the other hand, the Jews had strict dietary laws as far as certain types of animals they could not eat, where the Gentiles didn't have those restrictions. You know, if they wanted to eat a horse or, or whatever it be, they'd eat a horse. And, well, yeah, I mean, not the whole, anyway, you know what I mean. So anyway. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. 
And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Now let's put celebrating Christmas as a, a religious holiday in there. Receive not one who is weak, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. But he who is weak um, does not. Let him who celebrates Christmas not despise him who does celebrate Christmas. And let not him who does not celebrate Christmas despise him who does celebrate Christmas. Same thought. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Uh Uh-oh. Another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Can I take a day and set aside a day of the year to just think about And thank God for sending his son to this earth? Sure I can. Can I do that on April 22nd? Can I do it on July... Is there three days after July 31st? (laughs) Can I do it on December 25th? Sure I can. I can take a day, personally... And choose to do that. God allows me that as an individual. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and give God's thanks. For none of us lives to himself, or no one, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Whatever we're doing, whether we're not setting aside a day to thank God and honor God for sending Jesus, or not doing that, we're still... The Lord's, we're still, are the Lord's people. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. This judgment he is talking about is this judgment over doubtful things, over another's convictions. We don't have the right to judge another person's personal convictions in matters of indifference to God. If if Shirley all of a sudden decides she she thinks God wants her to wear a big red hat to services, I may think she's crazy, But she has the right to believe that. That's her conviction. And I have no right to judge her in that conviction. And that's what Paul's saying here. I know, he continues on, and am convinced by the Lord Jesus there is nothing unclean of itself. 
But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved by your food and you are no longer walking in love, do not destroy your food, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. I can't impose my convictions on you. Shirley decides she wants to wear a big red hat. She can't come to the rest of the ladies and say, hey, I believe that as women we should be wearing a big red hat. She can't do that. She doesn't have that right. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which, are made, which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. If Shirley believes she should wear a big red hat, that's between her and God. She does that. Happy is he who does not contemn himself in which he proves. But he who doubts... If I'm not convicted, if I'm a woman and I'm not convicted that I need to wear a red hat, if I do it, I sin because I'm violating my conscience. I'm doing something that I'm not sure that I should be doing. And he says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. And so as Christians... We have to make sure that we don't become so extreme that we start judging each other in our personal convictions and matters that are of matters of indifference to God. Paul clearly says here, I can set a day aside. And I have that right to set a day aside. Jesus obviously was born. He was born of a virgin. God gave him into this world. And so I, as a personal conviction, can set aside today to think about that, to thank God for it, and to praise him that he sent his son. And I can choose any day I want to choose. And so we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't become a judge rather than a servant. Turn your Bibles over to James chapter 4, and I'm going to reread again what Brother Isaiah read. James chapter 4. Do not speak evil of one another. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Don't have the right to judge each other about our personal convictions. So in conclusion, how do we avoid some of these spiritual challenges that come up during this time of year? Obviously, ones be wise in our spending. You know, especially those that have children in the house, I have to ask myself or ask yourself, will what I am buying instill in my child the values I hold? 
You know, if I'm buying my child everything that he or she wants, or if I'm buying my spouse everything that he or she wants, or, or whoever it may be, is that instilling in them the values that I hold dear? Am I instilling in that person that material things take precedent over spiritual things? Another thing, don't reward bad behavior. If that little guy or that little girl was a holy terror, don't be buying them those $1,000 iPhones. And I can tell you that from experience. Shirley gave me a piece of coal one year. And I deserved it. But I've been better. Do, does putting myself into debt convey to another person that I truly love them? And probably many of us have been down that road at some time or not in our life where we put ourselves into debt to buy a gift to convince someone that we really love them. Secondly, be strong and confident when addressing the difficult questions and comments from those who embrace a worldly and a denominational concept of Christian. You know, sometimes we forget we have the truth. And, and we have a thus saith the Lord for what we practice. And if we don't, then we shouldn't be practicing it. And when someone comes to you and says, well, you know, we need to be celebrating the birth of Jesus, show me. Show me where the church is supposed to be doing that, when the corporate body is supposing to, be, supposing to do that, where God says we're to do that as his people. And so we have to understand we have the truth. We have the biblical backing behind what we do religiously. And then finally, be tolerant of your brethren's personal conviction, convictions. You know, refrain from becoming a judge over matters that God doesn't really, is ambivalent to. You know, if your brother, one of the brothers or sisters wants to put up a, a nativity scene in their yard, I wouldn't do that. And if I did, I'd make sure it was biblically accurate. I wouldn't have the three wise men there because clearly the Bible doesn't teach that they were there when Jesus was born. But if I wanted one, I'd put one on. And so we must understand they have that right, that conviction. On the other hand, if a brother or sister doesn't want to have anything to do with this time of year and the celebration of Christmas, not, even as a, not only as a religious holiday, but as a... a um, national holiday, they have that right. They have that conviction. And we don't have the right to judge them over those matters of conviction. Now, we may want to teach them if they've gotten so far out on the fringes, um, you know, that maybe you want to think about this, but that's their right. And so as we introduce this lesson, there's some challenges uh, that you and I face in this time of year. And we have to be aware of them so that we maintain, or that we stay within the parameters of what God would have us to be. You know, that same principle uh, applies to our salvation. You know, there's, there's those, all, you know, that profess to 
follow Jesus when it comes to how a person saves. Uh, you know, there's extreme positions on, you know, extreme positions. Uh, you know, one group says everybody's saved. It's universal, universalism. Everybody's saved. Doesn't matter what you do, everything. God's, Jesus died on the cross. We're all going to heaven. There's another group that nobody's going to be saved. You know, they've limited their fellowship down to it's one person and he's not even sure he's in the right relationship with God. But the Bible's pretty clear. When we look in the book of Acts and we see how individuals went from an unsaved position to a saved position in God's eyes, they heard something about Jesus. They learned something about him, about his kingdom, about who he was, about his church, his kingdom. And when they heard that, they responded in faith. They came to a belief that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And when they did that, they made a, a mental decision to stop doing that which was wrong, that which was contrary to the will of God, and to start doing what God's will was. The Bible calls that repentance. It's a, it's, it's a change of mind. This is what I'm going to do from now on. And then it's obviously uh, manifested by our lifestyle. Uh, and then we read where those that did that uh, confess Jesus as Lord because uh, I can't confess Jesus as Lord if I've not made a decision to follow him. That's just, you know, a lie. It's hypocrisy. And then there was still the problem of, of past sins. You know, I'm following Jesus now. I'm doing what he says, but what about my past sins? And God has chosen immersion to be buried with Christ through baptism. And at that point, when we come out of that water, God says we wise to walk in newness of life. Our sins are washed away. It's representative, represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that is your wish this morning, we'd like to help you. If you'd like to learn more about the biblical pattern of how an individual is saved, we'd like to study with you. If you are a New Testament Christian and um, there's sin that you've embraced or fallen into or chosen to do and you need God's forgiveness, we'd like to pray with you and for you. And if there's just something that you want us to pray with you with, about, if we can help in any way, won't you come as we sing this song of encouragement?